Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 15th of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we've got Alex Thompson and Mark Anderson. Um, we'll get straight on uh, today, and uh, we're starting off with Joe Biden here. Uh, so he was uh, passing private messages to Iran, apparently, he claimed uh, on Saturday. Uh, he told reporters that uh, he was, uh, he told them this, basically, we're delivering we delivered a message privately and we're confident, we're well prepared. Of course, he's talking about Yemen here and so on. Uh, the Iranians, uh, for their part, said, instead of staging a military attack on Yemen, the White House should immediately cease all its, its, cease its all-out military and security cooperation with Tel Aviv against the people of Gaza and the West Bank, so security would return to the entire region. Uh, uh, the Iranian foreign minister went on to say, Yemen's measure uh, in support of Gaza's women and children, confrontation against the Israeli regime's genocide is commendable. So that was the Iranian position. Now, of course, uh, the question is, last week on Friday, we were uh, talking about uh, the attack on Yemen on Thursday by the United Kingdom and the United States, and it didn't seem that that was terribly effective. Uh, mainstream media are eventually having to catch up with that, and uh, this was the New York Times then. Uh, much of Houthi's offensive ability remains intact after US-led airstrikes. Uh, the strikes damaged the group's ability to carry out complex missile and drones attacks, US officials said, but identifying targets has proved to be a challenge. Now, they, these are unnamed uh, US officials uh, who basically said, well, we hit things, uh, but they didn't uh, weren't able to say how effective those uh, strikes had been. And in fact, uh, the New York Times suggesting that uh, the Houthis still have around 70% of uh, their capability intact. Uh, and part of this is because uh, most of their missiles and drones are launched from mobile sites and those are simply moved uh, whenever they feel like it. So uh, uh, how effective those strikes were is certainly a matter of debate. Uh, here is uh, the Antrola spokesman from Yemen. Uh, and his position was that the American and British naval fleet will be the legitimate target of the Yemeni forces after changing their strategic approach. And so then this morning, uh, it was announced that uh, the USS Laboon uh, had uh, knocked down a drone or a missile on its way in. Um, so clearly the activity is still uh, very much taking place in the Red Sea at the moment. Uh, meanwhile, Grant Shapps, our Defence Secretary, uh, said... We've always been clear with our intention is not to go into Yemen or anything like that, uh, but simply to send a very clear and I hope uh, unambiguous message to the Iranian-backed Houthis uh, that their behavior in the Red Sea was completely unacceptable. So maintaining this Iranian-backed narrative, uh, but of course the message was absolutely ambiguous because the effect of the attacks last week uh, wasn't terribly great. Uh, Shaps went on to say, guaranteeing that freedom of navigation is incredibly important. Uh, well, this is this is their aim, it seems. So uh, at the weekend, uh, Andrew Fisher, who's a former policy advisor for Labour, uh, was on Sky News, uh, and he had this to say. Highlights is the extreme double standards. Here we are, the Houthis have been attacking shipping lanes. Um, no deaths so far, thankfully. Um, Israel's been bombarding Gaza for the last three months. Tens of thousands of people died, children being amputated without anaesthetic, and that's fine. No sanctions on Israel, no strikes against them, no arms well, I guess, embargo. But I the guess Houthis this is because rebel, this is against the UK target, though, right? Is that not? It's because we don't care about international law or human rights. We have this rhetoric that we do, but we don't. This is absolute nonsense, and this whole conflict is exposing that. We say that, you know, the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, well, they've been bombed by the US and UK-backed Saudi Arabia for the last 10 years. Um, you know, actually, the last Labour um, administration was calling for sanctions on Saudi Arabia over this for um, an arms embargo. Hillary Benz, you know, somebody who's serving under Keir Starmer, was leading this within the last shadow cabinet. So, you know, we talk about this in completely bizarre ways that spins it into this sort of thing of one side is bad and the other side's crimes are airwashed. I mean, we've got a case in the International Court of Justice today brought by South Africa against Israel for genocide. We're not talking about that. We're talking about some interruption to shipping lanes. I mean, it's pretty small-scale stuff when tens of thousands of people are being killed. And, you, you know, I don't care what adjective you call it, whether you call it a massacre, a slaughter, ethnic cleansing, genocide, it doesn't really much matter. Tens of thousands of people are being killed, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about some shipping lanes. It's, it's perverse, but, really, and the rest of the world can see it. 
So that's uh, the position from uh, Labour spokesman. And of course, Keir Starmer yesterday on the BBC was absolutely refusing, well, no matter what uh, uh, Labour representatives are saying, was refusing to uh, comment on whether there would be any restriction on uh, uh, Saudi arms deals in the future. So now let's uh, move on to this then. This is NATO um, and uh, uh, this is uh, their um, uh, setting the record straight uh, document that they, they update from time to time. It was last updated on the 12th of January, 2024. This is all about Russian disinformation. They say debunking Russian disinformation on NATO. And the item from this that they were tweeting out this morning was this one. Fact, NATO exercises and deployments are not directed against Russia. Um, so that's their position. NATO exercises are not directed against Russia, except when they are, because exercise Steadfast Defender 24 is all about NATO practicing war against Putin's Russia. Uh, now, here is uh, Grant Shapps again, and this is what he said this morning. Uh, we are in a new era and we must be prepared to deter our enemies, prepared to lead our allies and prepared to defend our nation whenever the call comes. I can announce today that the UK will be sending some 20,000 personnel to take part in one of NATO's largest deployments since the end of the Cold War. It will see our military joining forces with counterparts from 30 NATO countries plus Sweden, providing vital reassurance against the Putin menace. So he was saying that at a speech that he gave at Lancaster House this morning, uh, and that was the graphic. This is the new uh, tagline, Alex, deter, lead, defend. How could we go wrong? <laughs> How indeed, whom to deter, whom to lead and whom to defend? All the objects are unstated. Yes, indeed. Okay, Alex, welcome to the programme. Uh, let's move on then to uh, Gonzalo Lira. Oh no, before we do that, actually, we've got one thing here, uh, speaking of war. Normally we keep our announcements till the middle of the news like a sandwich, uh, but since we're on the sad subject of war, uh, Yuri Roshka, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Moldova, whom an increasing number of our audience are aware of for his unique uh, and perspicacious commentary, uh, now has invited a call for papers, put out a call for papers, inviting people uh, to come provisionally, it will be sometime in May, to Chisinau, the capital of Moldova. Uh, for those who think it's a bit of a way to go or a strange country, I can assure you you'll be well received. The theme he's given this year is unrestricted warfare, colon, a holistic approach. Go to the show notes and find his call for papers. Uh, I think that many of our viewers could actually give him good ideas, and I wouldn't be surprised if he invited a couple to deliver their papers in person or online. I certainly recommend that forum for um, a no-holds-barred uh, take on all the ways in which war is being waged against the peoples of the world. Now, sad news has been confirmed from uh, Ukraine and more particularly from the family of the deceased, broken first by Alex Rubinstein. Uh, it is with great sadness that I must announce that Gonzalo Lira, born 1968, passed away in a hospital, according to his father. And uh, we'll look at the handwritten note in a moment, uh, but we'll see that at the bottom of this screen, uh, Mr. Lira Sr. said he can't accept the way his son has died. This was the second arrest and incarceration of Gonzalo Lira, the Chilean-American blogger formerly known as Co Coach Red Pill. He leaves behind at least a wife in Kharkiv, uh, by some reports also a child. I'm sorry if I have that wrong, but I'm uncertain. Uh, but according to Mr. Lira Senior, his son was tortured. We don't have external corroboration of that. Extorted, held incommunicado for eight months, and the US Embassy did nothing to help. Well, the ambassador in Kiev, as of not very long ago, is a very close buddy, we're told, of Victoria Newland, high up in the State Department. More of that in a moment. Uh, so here is the... Uh, note that was handed over by the defence attorney in prison uh, to uh, the family on the the fourth of January, so a day before the man died. Um, I have had a sorry a week before he died and uh, a day after the, um, uh, the, the the demand of access to the prison. And Mr. Lira said in his letter to his father, "Tell my sister I've had double pneumonia, so imagine not being able to breathe properly from either lung, as well as pneumothorax, very painful, and a very severe case of edema, swelling of the body. All this started in mid-October, but was ignored by the prison. They only admitted I had pneumonia at a hearing on December the 22nd. I'm about to have a procedure to reduce the edema pressure in my lungs, which is causing extreme shortness of breath to the point of me passing out after minimal activity or even just talking for two minutes. Prima facie, then Mr. Lira was left to suffocate, and this after he had been uh, uh, captured in the summer uh, after being somehow released by the Ukrainian authorities. I know many people are suspicious about that, but even Kit Klarenberg, one of his implacable uh, opponents in the 
free media scene had the decency to put out the other day. I disagreed with Mr. Lira on nearly everything, but he didn't desire to deserve, deserve to die in the Ukrainian jail. Another report has come out uh, from the Gray Zone, American citizen. Uh, he, he grew up in California and was a graduate of both Santiago de Chile and Dartmouth in the US in history and philosophy. Gonzalo de Lira dies from neglect in Ukrainian prison. And Rubinstein again uh, says that emails in his possession show that uh, Lira Sr. Uh, took uh, up contact with the embassy, the US embassy in Ukraine, on the 3rd of January and uh, urged them to make a, an effort uh, to find out. Uh, but he, he said that the, the Ukrainians were concealing information about his son's health. And he said, quote, the medical warden in the pre-trial jail in Kharkiv, so he was on remand for uh, anti-state activities for his broadcasting, that warden is not giving the information as to the health state of his health. And the next day he got that note. Um, now, just uh, to remind ourselves of what happened last summer, this was recorded on the last day of July last year. This was when Mr. Lira uh, had managed to escape Ukrainian custody the first time, had got himself by motorbike to the Hungarian border and was trying to cross in a in a panic, although he remained fairly calm in the situation. So some of us will remember this clip. Um, I'm going to be tried on Wednesday, August 2nd, the day after tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Um, I posted both the original Ukraine language version and the uh, translation. The translation was by the court-appointed translator, so I have no idea if it's accurate or not. Those who, of you who speak Ukraine will be able to uh, give a better sense as to whether that, um, that translation is accurate, but that's besides the point. I put up the entire indictment in both the original and the translation so that you can see exactly what I was charged with and imprisoned for. Now, the charges are very serious because the penalty is five to eight years in a prison labor camp. I'm 55 years old. Mm -hmm. And some of you may know, I have a fairly serious heart condition. I'm not gonna survive five to eight years. And I've already been told uh, by uh, people who would know that I will be found guilty. And because of circumstances, um, it would be convenient for me to serve out that sentence, for me to basically disappear. Mm -hmm. Disappear in a prison labor camp and, um, you know, potentially die there, you know, either naturally or unnaturally, as the case may be. And as it turned out, he didn't survive five years of incarceration. He didn't even survive five months of uh, pre-trial or remand detention. Now, uh, Tucker Carlson, and you'll find this in the show notes too, uh, has reminded his audience of an earlier episode he had interviewing Mr. Lira Sr., in which, you won't hear it in this clip, but Mr. Lira Sr. predicted that his son would die in Ukrainian custody. In the few seconds we're going to play here, Mr. Lira Sr. is noting the odd uh, synchronicity of timing uh, at the time of his son's second arrest. Let me say more. Last April 27th of this year, Gonzalo Purona web video, this time and for the first time, Tucker, heavily criticizing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Four days later, the Zelensky police detains Gonzalo through that terrible sinister Gestapo called SPU. And uh, just in closing, then, if you want to see what single upload may perhaps have cost Mr. Lira his life in what allegedly is a, a US-Ukrainian collusion, uh, I've put a still up here of a particularly long video over an hour long uh, called getting on for two hours called Victoria Newland that he uploaded a, a year ago that's still held posthumously on his channel. I recommend taking a good listen to that to see whether or not you agree with Mr. Lira's analysis of the conflict, uh, why he may have been done away with. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. Uh, now, Mark, let's uh, bring you onto the programme. Welcome to the programme and uh, give us an update on what's happening uh, with the border in the United States. pretty dire situation at the basic sense, of course, some 10,000 plus a day coming over the U.S. southern border with Mexico. Uh, over that, really, if you consider the entire 1,900-mile border from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. But the real 
uh, kicker is in Texas, which is 1,200 miles of that 1,900 miles. And of that Texas border, a lot is in Eagle Pass. And here in this first frame, we have an original photo from one of my field contacts, strong allegations, photo for UKC from U.S. border with Mexico at Eagle Pass, Maverick County, Texas, foil-coated captured illegals taken in by Texas State Guard. But do Texas Governor Abbott's actions match his get-tough rhetoric? And the uh, question is beginning to be answered, and it's not very pleasant. So here's an article that I started uh, just to get this basically laid out, uh, partly for my RBN radio show. Double cross at the border, question mark, close-up border scouts allege Governor Abbott is compromised. Out of Eagle Pass, according to exclusive reliable sources very close to the U.S. southern border, those whose views are rarely quoted by even alt media, let alone the legacy media, the hard realities at the border are being hidden from even the most passionately sincere border watchers who believe that Texas Governor Greg Abbott, whose state comprises about 1,200 of the 1,900-mile border, is on the level. Is he on the level? The internationalist Biden White House, as Abbott himself often says, is seen as the only real obstacle to border security. Meanwhile, the legacy media plays its part by criticizing Governor Abbott, characterizing the third-term Republican as a heartless, hard-right killjoy who simply hates immigrants. Uh, reading on a little bit more from my article, such criticism serves to make Abbott look like the sincere patriot, and maybe he is, but serious doubts keep emerging. And this has been going on off and on for several months, maybe the better part of a year, guys. First, a step back, uh, and let's consider a January 13th screed from the Atlantic. This unsavory globalist rag, as I describe it, used the word ugly to describe Abbott's new policy of reportedly having Texas State Guard soldiers exclude, in other words, keep out federal Border Patrol and CPB Customs and Border Protection agents, keep them out of Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas. This is where huge amounts of illegals are gathered. Keep them out because the state of Texas, accurately enough, believes that the federal government's open border cartel accommodating policies are perpetuating the ongoing massive onslaught of illegals. Eagle Pass has been ground zero for some of the largest numbers of illegal entries, as I, as I mentioned, and the problem remains largely unabated. Moving on from there, specifying Abbott's supposed sins, the Atlantic scribbled, the Texas National Guard has taken hostage a 2.5-mile stretch of the U.S. border with Mexico, according to a shocking Supreme Court filing by the Justice Department Armed Texas soldiers and vehicles deployed by the state have repeatedly denied U.S. Border Patrol agents access to Shelby Park in Eagle Pass. The state did not immediately deny this. A spokesman for Governor Abbott said Texas will keep, quote, utilizing every tool and strategy to respond to President Biden's ongoing border crisis. And we'll move on from there. This is from Anson Bills. He's in the field practically every day, like another uh, field contact of mine, Wyatt, Wyatt Watson. And this is what he had to say to me, Mr. Bills. I talked to a lieutenant and a staff sergeant, and they said, in reality, the Texas soldiers are detaining the illegals, but still turning them over to CPB, contrary to what Abbott is saying. Last night, some of the media, mostly alternative, saw Customs and Border Protection go in, pick up the illegals from the state, and then come out. Everything is just a dog and pony show. Understand this clearly. The Texas Department of Public Safety, which is the state police and the state guard, are now detaining the illegals, but still turning them over to the feds. Bills also told me, quote, Abbott is trying to keep a lid on what he's doing, but he was not expecting me and others to be there. If it was true, his assumed efforts to exclude Biden's border agents and do the right thing, I and some bills. I wanted to support him, but when I found out it's not true and he's handing the illegals over to the feds, it's damage control more than anything, and the illegals that end up in federal custody are mainly released into the U.S. And this, of course, is spreading them out all over the country. And here's kind of a summary of the different things to consider. This, this uh, provides a summary. Newly passed State Bill SB4, 
which doesn't even take effect until March, despite the ultra urgency of the border situation. And that long time period invites lawsuits to overturn or at least uh, stop the law. That law makes it a state crime to enter Texas illegally. But critics maintain the bill is toothless and reportedly requires that illegals even have to agree to be deported. And uh, meanwhile, get this, homeless U.S. military veterans are living under bridges, even in the winter, while illegals in places such as Maine are given free housing. This is big in the news right now. Maine is considering free housing for illegals. The vets are watching the very nation they thought they defended get overturned from within, not without. And it appears, guys, that Governor Abbott has been compromised. The guys, the people I talked to, the main sources in the field believe that the Bush family still holds a lot of sway over Texas in terms of the transgenerational power structure, and that Abbott is more a Bush boy, as they call him, than a sincere governor trying to sincerely stop the border onslaught. So that's a very serious allegation. And over, over the course of time, a lot of last year into this year, that's proven to be more and more true as different things come out. And we did have one more photo there that I took myself. And um, meanwhile, just kind of an add-on addendum, uh, there's Russians at the Texas-Mexico border near me. And this is a Russian family. His name is Vitaly, he said. And that's his two sons, apparently. And uh, I won't go into a long spiel about it, but him and several other Russians, even some young ladies from Kazakhstan, uh, talked to me a little bit and said that they just believe America is a more free place to live. They've kind of abandoned their lives more or less from their home countries. And uh, they seem to be exploiting the open border that Latin American people have already created uh, in terms of the migrant onslaught and Biden's open border policies. And they're just riding the coattails of that, looking for, quote, a better life. But lots of Russians, Eastern Europeans right at the Texas border. So a very interesting and um, uh, perplexing situation, guys. Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, you can do so at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, I'd be very much appreciated. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially from ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, Debbie is uh, interviewing uh, Dr. Ahmed Malad, Malik, sorry, and uh, he, of course, NHS uh, orthopedic consultant, consultant surgeon at one point, no longer. Uh, he is no longer working uh, in, at least his career seems to have uh, come to uh, a, a conclusion since he spoke out on COVID issues. Um, so do watch this uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m. if you possibly can. Uh, a quick reminder that uh, 20, 20th, 21st of February, uh, the uh, Assange campaign is asking everybody to gather outside the Royal Courts of Justice. This will be the last hearing uh, in order to prevent Assange being sent back to the United States. Uh, so as they say, it's now or never. Um, so do get along to that if you possibly can. Uh, and a final reminder that uh, Andrew Bridgen uh, is uh, having uh, another debate on excess mortality in the House of Commons on the 6th of, 16th of January. Uh, if you haven't yet contacted your MP to encourage them to go, uh, then please do so. Um, okay, uh, now last week uh, we mentioned this um, documentary, which Taylor Hudak uh, has produced. Um, and this is uh, a, an interview, a, a whole documentary on the pathologist Arnie Bookhart uh, and his final interview. Um, I'm glad to say that Taylor is with us today. Uh, Taylor, hopefully you can hear us. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, yes, I can. Thank you for having me. Um, thanks for joining us. Now, I just wanted to get uh, your thoughts on this documentary. Uh, it took a long time and tragically, of course, Arnie Bookhart passed away uh, just as you were uh, um, concluding it. Uh, but finally, uh, you've, it, it's ready to go. A huge undertaking, a huge piece of work. Um, just tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, so many of the viewers, the listeners right now will probably remember Professor Arna Burkhart from the D4CE Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposiums, which were hosted by UK Column. Professor Burkhart is a German pathologist 
who was examining the autopsy materials and biopsy materials in patients who died shortly after vaccination. And so back in April of 2023, I had the chance to interview him in his laboratory in Germany. And we go through a series of around 25 of his own cases. We discuss the implications of these cases and the mRNA injections in general. And unfortunately, uh, you're correct, Mike, in saying that just a few short weeks after the filming of that interview, Professor Burkhart had passed away at around the same time that I had obtained all of the footage and was about to begin editing. So I was able to uh, work through this. Of course, it was a, an extensive project. It took uh, many, many months to work on and about two years in total because I had a, a lot of uh, learning to do here. And so, yes, that interview is available on the lastamericanvagabond.com. This was one of Professor Burkhart's final interviews. And one of the really interesting and important things to remember about Professor Burkhart is that in early 2021, he was about to head into retirement. However, it was at around this time that the mRNA COVID injections were being rolled out to the general public and many prominent doctors and scientists such as Dr. Michael Palmer, as well as Professor Sutra Bhakti had stated uh, serious concerns about the potential for autoimmune disease, blood clots and strokes to happen in individuals who may receive this mRNA injection. Now, they were quite certain in their scientific hypotheses here, but it wasn't until Professor Burkhart came along, actually examined these autopsy materials and patients who died shortly after vaccination, in which he was able to show with a high degree of certainty that the COVID injections did in fact cause the death in these patients or the disease in these patients. And he uses a series of testing mechanisms uh, through histopathology or IHC, immunohistochemistry, which allows him to determine that the spike protein expression is in fact caused by the mRNA injection and not the COVID virus. And of course, this is all described in a greater detail in the interview. But I think right now would perhaps be a good time to uh, show a clip from this interview where we hear from Professor Burkhart himself and he discusses why he chose to take on this study and engage in this work. We could show that clip for the viewers. I understand that about a month prior to taking on this project, that is examining the autopsies in patients who died shortly after vaccination, as well as examining biopsies in living patients who were vaccinated, you were about to head into retirement. Yes. And you decided to take on this work without much recognition, without pay, you, why, are you, why are you doing this work? What motivates you to continue to do this? Well, it's, uh, I think it's a, a human responsibility. I mean, if I have the uh, knowledge and the education and the ability to uh, uh, see and uh, uh, make a diagnostic in the microscope and I see something that is alarming and that may be uh, a threat to, well, actually all humanity, uh, there's no way out. Actually, I did not know what I was going into, and uh, but. Are you surprised by what you have found? Is it? Are you surprised by by what you have found? Well, yes, definitely. I I never would have thought that uh, this could be possible. But you I, never thought this could be possible. Yes. Uh, you're muted. You're muted. Uh... We can't hear you. Yeah. Thank you. So as you can see there, quite an extraordinary statement from Professor Burkhart that he never thought this could be possible. And now I do want to focus on a few of the findings, the important findings um, in this uh, particular study that he was conducting. And what he was able to see was that the blood vessels are particularly impacted by the vaccine because the vaccine contents distribute to other locations in the body, and this is mainly through the bloodstream, so therefore it is unsurprising that the blood vessels are impacted. And in particular, the aorta, which is the largest blood vessel in the body, is impacted. And Professor Burkhart was able to observe a, several aortic dissections, and this is a very rare 
very rare and serious condition in which a tear in the aorta allows blood to rush into the vessel wall, causing it to split or dissect. And we will play another clip in just a second here. This is from a case involving a 55-year-old man who died 21 days after receiving the second injection. He died from this very rare condition and aortic dissection. So we'll play the clip and then discuss uh, the details after. You see a section uh, of the aorta, and if you see on the left side, there's a solid wall, uh, which is a kind of yellow coloration. And then you see that there's a split formation in the middle. And then there, uh, on the right side, there are actually two walls. And in the middle, there's uh, this uh, black material, which actually is blood. So there has been blood flown into this uh, dissected aorta. The, the media, what we call the media of the aorta, has been destroyed and the blood has entered. And once the blood has entered there, and then the aorta may rupture and uh, the people die of uh, blood loss. Before the rollout mm -hmm. or implementation of the COVID-19 vaccines, how common was an aortic dissection? As I said, we uh, did uh, about uh, 1,500 to 2,000 uh, autopsies a year. And uh, I might say it might have been one or two a year at that time. And in this series of 75, uh, autopsies that we have re-examined, uh, we saw five uh, ruptures of the aorta with uh, uh, consecutive deaths. So again, quite extraordinary. In his 40 years of pathology, he saw one to two cases of aortic dissections per year out of 1,500 to 2,000 autopsies. And in this series of 75 autopsies, he saw a total of five aortic dissection. So um, very concerning findings. We discussed numerous other uh, cases, one in particular involving the spike protein expression and the lymphocytic inflammation in the testis of patients who were injected with this COVID vaccine as well. We discussed two cases in particular. If we have time though, I would like to show um, a clip in which Professor Burkhart further expands on these findings in particular, as well as a very well-known speech that he gave in Stockholm in which he recommended that a woman of childbearing age not become pregnant by a man who has been vaccinated. He expands further on that. If we do have a moment, perhaps we wanna also share that with the viewers. Yes, yes. During a recent speech in Stockholm, you said that you would recommend a woman of childbearing age to not become pregnant by a man who has been vaccinated. Can you expand further on, on what you meant by that? Well, actually, uh, I wanted to add something, but I was uh, interrupted by a, a big applause to yes. this. <laughs> if I may make a personal comment, uh, this is not a scientific comment. Uh, if I were a woman in fertile age, I would not plan a motherhood from a person, from a man who has been vaccinated, unless... I think these pictures are very disturbing, very disturbing for me. And I said, unless, and uh, then I stopped and uh, I get uh, many telephone calls of uh, women who say, well, what did you say, unless what? Yeah, so right now, why don't you tell us, what else were you going to say well, at I, that moment? I would at least uh, wait uh, for two or three cycles of spermatogenesis. Now, the cycle of spermatogenesis is about 70 days. So uh, uh, it's, I would wait for, let's say, uh, two, uh, well, three quarters of a year or something like that. And uh, before this, I would uh, suggest to make a spermatogram uh, examine this, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, sperma and uh, especially the mortality, the uh, mortality of the sperma. So uh, I think this would be an indication. 
So there you have it, some additional clarification. And in fact, that segment is a lot longer. That's just a short clip of that segment. We do discuss, as I said, two cases, a 55-year-old male, also a 29-year-old male. Both of them had been deceased, but showed spike protein expression in the testis. And uh, for further information, clarification, and to watch this video in full, you can go to the Last American Vagabond Com. That's where it's available. And I want to also just give a big thanks to uh, UK Colin for having me here and also to Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond, Dr. Michael Palmer, Oval Media, the Solari team, and Catherine Austin Fitz for their support and guidance throughout this project. Taylor, thank you very much for that. That's uh, hugely interesting. And it is a great uh, interview and documentary. So I do recommend as many people watch it as possible and share it, of course, as well. So thank you for joining us today. Okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, and uh, Mark, I think it's back to you. Uh, we're talking Biden. Yeah, the Biden treachery never seems to end. Speaking of threats to human life, uh, both pre-born, et cetera, et cetera. Here we have something from The Hill, just a quick headline. That's a D.C. Beltway publication. Biden administration rescinds much of the Trump conscience rule for health workers. And it basically means the Biden administration will largely undo a Trump era rule that boosted the rights of medical workers to refuse to perform abortions and gender transformation series, uh, surgery that would conflict with their moral or religious beliefs. So Biden is always rearranging the infrastructure in terms of the moral order. Now, the House Ways and Means Committee is chiming in really quick on this. Chairman Smith, he's out of New Jersey, applauds the introduction of legislation to block this Biden administration targeting of pregnancy care, uh, pregnancy resource centers, rather. And um, what this involves, and that's a January 10th release, this involves the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act introduced January 10 by Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee and the Pro-Life Caucus co-chair Chris Smith in New Jersey. It would block the proposed Biden rule that would prohibit states, the rule if it's passed by Biden or if it takes effect, would prohibit states from giving temporary assistance for needy families funds to pregnancy care centers that support both the mom and the unborn child. There are 2,700 such pregnancy care centers across the country, and the bill um, is was marked up the next day, January 11, as, as we're seeing here. Uh, these pregnancy care centers provide uh, parenting classes, diapers, food, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the direct antithesis, antithesis to the um, abortion industry that has killed 60 million babies since Roe v. Wade was first conjured up in 1973. Anyway, this other release we're seeing here, uh, it just gives some of Chairman Smith's opening statements on this by marking up that bill, the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act. I won't read from it. People can check it out on the um, on the show notes. And um, that that's basically it. Um, the a quick footnote on that is the rulemaking process in the U.S. has always been somewhat questionable in that it doesn't involve Congress directly, and there's a public comment um, time that's given, and then it goes into the Federal Register. So um, it takes a lot sometimes for Congress to challenge anything going through the federal rulemaking process, but this is a major one because it involves not only abortion, but the whole um, gender transformation thing, uh, horm hormone blocking drugs, uh, genitalia surgery, and all that. So this this would impact the lives of millions and millions of people if the rule by Biden remains unchallenged. So back to you guys. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Now let's come back to the UK. And uh, Alex, uh, what's going on at King's College London? This hasn't much to do with Israel as it does to do with Britain, Mike. And I know people prick their ears up and some would accuse us of... Uh, bias for saying that, but if we bring the piece on screen that's caused the fuss, we'll see that the byline of the online publication in which the news broke makes no bones about it. The publication is Fathom. The byline is for a deeper understanding of Israel and the region. And the author, Anna Stanley, has the headline, or it's been given to her by an editor, Scandalous Indoctrination, colon, 
inside a King's College counter-terrorism course for British civil servants. King's College London, together with St Andrews University in Scotland, is the uh, preferred centre of concentration these days for the security states to train, not just recruits, but also to get them up to master's and doctorate level in various aspects of security and terrorism studies. So KCL is where all the action is at. Let's have a look at the authoress. Again, I plead with our audience to uh, take her uh, at face value, uh, give her the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise, as with anyone else. But you know what you're getting here. You're dealing with uh, self-professedly uh, a supporter of Israel. She's made Aliyah. That means she has, uh, as, a, uh, an in, uh, as, a, as a Jewish person entitled to, she's gone to claim her citizenship and live in Israel. She's left the British Foreign Office to do that. She's obviously strikingly young, a graduate in philosophy. People might sneer, what does she know? But actually, philosophers do think quite useful thoughts often. She's an alumna, that should be. She's not done languages of uh, something that, in my opinion, shouldn't exist, a counter-terrorismic group called Young Leaders in National Security, a fellowship for that. And she's an OSINT, which is a, a big uh, noise in recent years in intelligence agencies. That's piecing together things that people have put on the internet uh, without spies having to, 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 to filter them out from secret corners. What's it all about? Well, without reading everything, she went to uh, a course for the privileged young thought leaders in this burgeoning branch of counterterrorism. They were addressed by a former director of GCHQ, interestingly enough to me. I'd guess that would be one of the two or three gentlemen who directed GCHQ in my time. Uh, who went off with a more commercial bent. I'm not being un unduly sneering, but I'm assuming that rather than the likes of Sir David Omond, but really very top senior civil servants come to address the bright young things. What happens? Well, the lecturers, probably not the uh, the pinstripe suits, I don't think even directors of PCHQ wear them uh, those days, but and it's probably not the, the top men, but some of the, the professional academics in that field of counterterrorism were awash with at least what this Israeli pro-Israeli publication wants to call postmodern identity politics. And the, the mood music here is, why aren't we concentrating on the Muslims? They're the threat. Uh, but be that as it may, there is some useful and worrying detail here. For example, we've got lecturers saying something that I know was the bane of your life in Northern Ireland when you were growing up, this, this nonsense that one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, as if there were no real standards for what constitutes murder. Uh, and so uh, Ms. Stanley says, can we be objective? And she says she was looked blankly upon as if it were a herd of cows, not her idiom, but me, me describing it. And then uh, perhaps insufficient discretion shown by Ms. Stanley and how this happened. They're shown an ISIS propaganda video, of course, material. And one of the young ladies says, oh, I knew him. He went to my school. Now, if Vanessa Billy were with us, I think she would be quick to point out this is not a coincidence. This has to do with the attendee, in this case, the young Muslim uh, from, from a British school, being drawn into this apparatus for uh, certain purposes, rather than just being a case of, uh, as Miss Stanley wants to put it, I think, uh, how did such a security risk uh, or a loose cannon get on the course? This, I think, at the bottom is, is important too, that the young professionals uh, among whom Miss Stanley sits uh, represent a microcosm of what comes out of British universities. Too true. Just think of Debbie's interview the other day, or all our academic and educational coverage. And she says correctly that it's ironic to be surrounded by civil servants in counterterrorism, no less, who hate the concept of the state. And she says that in extremism and counterterrorism, the state's not to be trusted. Well, she says that as virtually a mouthpiece of the state of Israel. I agree as a skeptic on the state of Israel. She's right in that much. So uh, drawing to a summary, she says, the overriding emphasis of what was spoon-fed to them is that Islamist extremism is, is, is bigged up more than it should be. And the likes of you and me, we would be right-wing extremists. We are um, uh, given more weight than is proportionate. And there are lecturers being sneery about uh, anyone who thinks that there's a problem with wokeism uh, in lectures. Uh, but finally on this, she says that the lecture argued, and this is what's drawn the, the gasps, said, uh, naming these gentlemen, that Lo Douglas Murray in Britain and Joe Rogan in America, the biggest podcaster in the world, are examples of the far right. And then he mused out loud that we, that would be the beautiful people or the people who think right and are in the right circles, we won't deplatform them, it would cause issues. This has the ring of truth to me, Mike, even if people are sceptical about the, the authoress. And the lecturer in question said, well, so society, that's of course shorthand for people in power, need to find other ways to suppress them. Uh, picking up on this, one of the best bloggers on the whole of Substack, Money Circus, responded to Douglas Murray's... Uh, predictable indignation when this article was published. He obviously tweeted it out and said, look at this, I told you they'd got it in for me. What did Money Circus say in reply? Uh, he said, Douglas, you utterly missed the point. 
And Money Circus has a deep state background, too. He knows what he's talking about. He says it may sound like anti-government training amounting to indoctrination, but it is coming from the security state, right? So those woke lecturers who hate being called woke were picked and put in Kings, or at least put in front of the audience at Kings there, whether they work there or not, by uh, the directors of GCHQ, the Foreign Office and the Minister of, Ministry of Defence. Money Circus explains King's College is where Susan Mickey, alias Stalin's nanny, the communist member of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE, is based. And here it goes on. Why do you, Douglas Murray, think that Britain's newest intelligence agency, the Joint Biosecurity Centre and Outgrowth of Military Intelligence, would be working with Mickey, a communist, in a university, King's, that's known for its war studies department and military links, unless that was its intention. And he's quite right. King's uh, war studies department is uh, absolutely where people read, you know, the, uh, the, the line to take on certain uh, state and non-state threats in the intelligence world. Moving over to Switzerland, which is supposed to have a US-style constitutional protection against such things, the magazine Republique has got wind in a long article, which you can follow from the show notes and use a translator to read, if you don't read German, saying that the Swiss government, the federal government, is surveilling us all. It's been aptly summarised by SwissInfo.ch under the title Swiss Government Accused of Massive Online Surveillance. And they're saying that when two-thirds of the Swiss were induced to vote through a package in a referendum in 2016 that included the ability to packet sniff, which is the technical term of what's going on here, uh, they were sold a pup. And they were told, uh, it, it, people who know Bill Binney and his claims about thin thread and mass surveillance, it's the same that went on in America 20 years ago. They were told, we need to be following the whole of the traffic, allegedly only from and to Syria and other war zones to Switzerland, for your security. But the crucial thing was that this allowed them to choose selectors, so anyone using certain terms. So that might be uh, kill the soldiers in Syria. Uh, you can understand why an agency wants to pack its sniff for that. But it might equally be, I don't like what they're doing to Trump in America. So uh, everyone who's a dissident would be picked up that way. And I'm just on screen briefly now is that the Swiss federal intelligence people are saying absolutely not, uh, no way at all. But the documents that Republic had got hold of uh, including court documents and technical memos from the government branches, uh, make it clear that far from uh, observing federal um, constitutional norms, the Swiss agencies have actually been extending this program to smaller telecoms. So even a country uh, like Switzerland in the West now, because it's in the Western intelligence blob, is up to these tricks and it's got the ability to sniff out whatever the whole population is saying. Yes, Alex, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, it has been a weekend of protest. And protests continuing to get uh, today. So let's uh, look at Germany first. Andrew Bridgen was tweeting this out yesterday. Uh, overhead shot of German farmers protest at Nuremberg today. The resistance is growing. Uh, well, indeed it is. And uh, lots of footage on various social media about uh, the tractors all heading off to uh, uh, Berlin today. So they're uh, surrounding Brandenburg Gate. Uh, they're demanding, of course, uh, as Alex was talking about last week, a full rethink on the uh, the tax hikes that uh, the German government is talking about uh, with farmers. Now, there have been some uh, uh, pullback from the position by the uh, German authorities. Uh, they have uh, uh, decided that it will gradually phase in uh, the various uh, tax increases and the removal of subsidies, for example, on the equivalent of red diesel and so on over a period of time rather than immediately. But nonetheless, uh, as you can see on screen there, uh, the German farmers absolutely saying they are fed up. Um, so that's, uh, that continues. But, you know, Alex was just talking about uh, far right uh, there. Um, and uh, this, this far right narrative continues in the British press, at least. Uh, very little coverage in the British press about the actual farmer protests themselves. But the British press very keen to make sure that we all know that Germany's far right seek revolution in farmers, in farmers' protests. That's the BBC. Uh, and then we have The Guardian here, uh, why Europe's farmers are protesting and the far right is taking note. And in fact, British media full of this narrative, which is already more or less discredited everywhere, certainly in Germany, it's discredited. Um, so, uh, but the British press likes flogging dead horses. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, coming back to London, of course, over the weekend on Saturday, uh, thousands attend pro-Palestinian march in London, according to the BBC. Uh, but thousands also calling for release of hostages at pro-Israel rally, according to the BBC. And of course, the BBC didn't uh, make the point that uh, I'm not sure exactly what the proportions were, but let's say uh, five times bigger uh, on the Saturday than on the Sunday. 
but the BBC wanted to make sure thousands was in the headline in both cases uh, so that we understood that they were more or less the same size, even though the protests weren't more or less the same size. Let's just uh, have a look at uh, the pro-Palestine uh, protest on Saturday just to give an idea. Uh, and then uh, on Saturday as well, uh, there were a group of uh, anti-Zionist Jews uh, protesting uh, and they, in fact, were getting heckled, severely heckled by uh, pro-Zionist Jews. Uh, so this is the kind of uh, situation that we have uh, amongst uh, you know, division within the Jewish community itself. Uh, and you can see the type of uh, uh, the, the approach that was being made to these, uh, these guys. Uh, and, uh, well, then actors are getting in on this as well, because, of course, as the, uh, uh, the um, genocide at the IC, ICJ uh, case continues, uh, a number of actors came together, led by Charles Dance, it seems, uh, to actually read the South African uh, case file, uh, because the mainstream media isn't covering this uh, to their satisfaction. So uh, protest seems to be the name of the game at the moment. Uh, Alex, uh, but let's uh, come back to you. The whole of Northern Europe now seems to be uh, rethinking whether there should be much digital technology used in the classroom. And uh, so, well, there we are. So Defacle 2.0, which is an Austrian living in Norway, has done uh, yeoman's work in uncovering the detail. So the show notes will cover uh, both of the links uh, to the two parts yet so far published of this three-part he's put out on Nordic delusions. Uh, the first one uh, before Christmas uh, was on excessive digitalization of the classroom. Uh, bear in mind that Britain is uh, a riding point on this and, and talking about how wonderful uh, the new style classroom will be. And as usual, the real pioneers and, and the, the progressives in, in, in Scandinavia, just as with teenage pregnancy, immigration policy, have actually rode back from their position, having seen where it leads. So the new piece ex uh, is excessive digitalization to bring national cell phone bans and less screen time. Um, Sander Face, the, the author, is, is able, able to read the Scandinavian languages at a high level. So he summarized the information. I won't read this, but Sweden, which even among the Nordics is regarded as the, as the wacky, uh, way out progressive one, uh, was the one coming out with all this guff. And uh, Sander Face's home country, Austria, lapped it up, the ORF, the uh, public media uh, in, in, in uh, Austria, uh, used this. Uh, to show, look, real progressive countries like the Swedes use digitization of the classroom as an equitable outcome and to crowdsource the, the solution. It empowers everyone and we shouldn't be listening to authoritative scientists. We should be uh, leveling uh, the, the conversation, etc. A load of guff. But knowing, as he does, that Norway, where he now lives, as well as Denmark, uh, even to some extent Finland, are more conservative than that, he's found the counterpoints to this. Norway is reducing screen time in schools. The Norwegian state broadcaster NRK, NRK is saying that students should read more on paper. Shock, shocking thought. He's shown that digitalization is a, an issue about equality of opportunity. It's all this DEI stuff that's coming to the fore. And Scandinavia is not alone in this. Uh, but we'll just it, it, finally on Scandinavia see that uh, Scandinavia is, uh, in the form of Norway at least, uh, considering cell phone free schools. The education minister from Norwegian Labour says that screens in schools are part of the problem. Uh, a nearly Scandinavian country in many social ways is here is the Netherlands right here. And both they and uh, Britain, or at least England, which is where the education ministry uh, now covers from Westminster, have come up with the same. Um, so the despite all the, the guff we're getting about uh, technology in British education, uh, guidance, as we like to call it in Britain, in other words, orders, we don't like that term, but that's what it is. The orders from the Department for Education in Westminster is that from next academic year, there will be no mobile phones in schools. And almost simultaneously, the Dutch government has announced the same thing. But again, is telling the schools individually that they will have to come to the uh, original uh, the deep arrangements which allow uh, phones to be banned. It looks like the government doesn't want to be carrying the can for this in the end. Uh, yes, Alex, thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, interesting enough, uh, uh, my daughter's school just sent a uh, questionnaire asking for parental opinions uh, on exactly this topic. So this seems to be uh, something which is being encouraged. We'll, we'll keep an eye on this and see how it goes. Now, uh, today, uh, the part three review into Operation Span and the investigation in, of non-recent child sexual exploitation in Rochdale was published. Uh, the authors, Malcolm Newsom, CBE and Gary Ridgway, 
Uh, and really, what are they saying? Widespread, deplorable failures. They're calling it failures. Uh, I would question that uh, in the police and the local council uh, dealing with abuse gangs. Uh, so 173 pages in this review. It's not available for download as far as I can see at this point. Hopefully it will be soon. Um, and uh, well, they're saying that 96 men are still uh, considered to be a potential risk to children. Uh, a whole uh, raft of people that have not yet been prosecuted for this. Uh, and the question is, why not? Uh, and so on. So uh, this was the uh, Greater Manchester Police response to the review of op into Operation Span. Uh, I'm not going to uh, attempt to, to go through this because they're making a lot of excuses and saying how, how effective they were in many areas. But let's uh, just bring the comments of the one of the report authors on screen. Uh, successive police operations were launched over this period, but these were insufficiently resourced to match the scale of the widespread organized uh, exploitation within the area. Consequently, children were left at risk and many of the abusers to this day have not been apprehended. Um, I'm saying that this is not failure as such, uh, but uh, by design in some ways, because of course, this is the in inevitable outcome of how uh, the councils, the police and so on have been run uh, uh, subsequent to the, uh, the involvement of common purpose and the type of training and leadership uh, that's been put into these organizations since uh, common purpose started driving organizations in this direction. Uh, if you want to understand more about why I'm saying that, <clears throat> excuse me, please have a look at uh, a series of articles on the UK column website called The Common Purpose Effect. Uh, there's, uh, I think there are about uh, eight, or, eight or a dozen uh, articles there for you to read, which gives you, should give you an idea of uh, the direction of travel for how these types of organizations are being run uh, and being led and why it is an inevitability uh, that this type of travesty uh, continues. Um, let's come on to uh, Mark then, uh, and we'll end uh, with you and Donald Trump. Some interesting developments on the Trump landscape. Of course, today, later today, this evening, in fact, is the Iowa caucus, the first um, uh, primary election in the long drawn out US election process. That takes place tonight. There's unseasonably, unusually cold weather, even for this time of year in Iowa, and people are worried that people won't make it to the polls. Trump did a lot of pre-caucus uh, stumping, including a, an extended conversation with the Attorney General of Iowa that was quite interesting. He referred to Joe Biden as a Manchurian candidate. Uh, take that as, as you will. But uh, this slide here, how to caucus for President Trump on January 15. Uh, and But once you get into that, getting past that slide, you see some of the issues. Rebuild the greatest economy in history. Fair trade for the American worker. Very populist sounding here. Unleash energy dominance, which would include energy independence. Secure borders and reclaim national sovereignty. Uh, the talk that he gave to the Iowa AG was replete with references to how uh, Trump claimed to have the most secure border in pretty much all of US history when he was president and the absolute disaster that Biden has brought upon that. But as I reported earlier, Texas Governor uh, Abbott, even though he's in the opposite party, may be part of the con. Uh, he may be uh, false opposition to this. Some other um, uh, issues uh, include in this other list, reject globalism and embrace patriotism. Uh, care for our vets. We heard about vets living under bridges while illegal aliens get all these perks. Protect parents' rights. Uh, defend law and liberty and censorship and reclaim free speech. These all have a good sound to them, at least. Free, honest, and lawful elections. Questioning elections, of course, got Trump in trouble. And that's one of the reasons they're trying to keep him off the ballot. He dared to question the elections. Um, that's one of the real reasons, of course, they claim he was an insurrectionist January 6th, but he's never been convicted for that. Drain the swamp of Washington corruption and better health care choices at, and lower costs. So Trump is coming out swinging. He also gave a video, Mike. He provided a video at uh, DonaldJTrump.com forward slash Iowa caucus where he's calling for literal war against the drug cartels. He's swinging with both fists. Like him or not, he's got a lot of passion. He's looking healthier than ever. And uh, Nikki Haley and Florida Governor DeSantis are uh, trailing Trump significantly going into the Iowa caucus. So unless 
Unless Iowa is buried in snow, it appears Trump probably has today's caucus clinched. And maybe we'll see a little bit of his cartel war declaration video and extra if that's possible. So a very interesting development. I'll have a little more next week about the results of this all-important caucus. Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, now, Alex, uh, let's end with a couple of uh, final slides. Yes, um, and finally, memes. The first one is uh, supposedly what Claudine Gay, the outgoing uh, head of Harvard University, would have written uh, if she had written uh, a self-help book. It's called The Three Keys to Success, and those three keys of the keyboard are control C and V, so that you can cut and paste uh, a nod to her plagiarism. Uh, from the German farmer protests, one tractor had this fetching canvas, uh, flunked your education, become a politician. Well, that was quite apt. And uh, finally, another of these Batman uh, memes, uh, given the trans rage at the moment, uh, this one is Batman just slapping his hapless assistant Robin and saying, it's Batman. Yes, okay. Thank you, Alex. Uh, so look, we got to end there for today. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra if you're a UK column member. Uh, if you're not, uh, we will see you again at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, but please uh, do join us at 1 p.m. tomorrow for the interview with Dr. Malik. Uh, have a great day. We'll see you uh, soon. Bye-bye.